Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, welcome back. It's been almost two months since I recorded an All Things episode, and I just really appreciate those of you who have reached out to check in and see if I'm still doing it. I am. I love recording this podcast, but it's something that I do totally alone. So whether it's the research, the writing, the recording, the producing, I do that totally solo. And the last couple months, I just have not had the margin. I haven't had the capacity. And I know that your 2020 has been crazy too. You know, it has been a demanding and a disruptive year with quarantine and then all the other disruptions that flowed from that, whether it was with our churches or jobs or families or other things going on in the United States. It's been a hard year. And I know you guys are feeling that as well, but I am back at least today and hopefully can get in a good rhythm as the fall carries on, but that is all up to the Lord. Before I go on, I do want to share a shameless plug for my book. Enough About Me is now available on Audible, or you can actually download it as well on Hoopla Digital. So um, I recorded it back in January. I'm the one that actually narrates my own book, and I would love for you to listen to it. So go to Audible, download it, and have a listen. I know that since you're listening to this podcast, you apparently enjoy listening to things, and you can apparently tolerate my voice. So go check out Enough About Me on Audible and maybe even leave me a review. I would be so so, so grateful. Well, I just want to acknowledge that all of us are having a hard year. You know, we are experiencing a ton of loss, whether it's the loss of somebody that we love due to COVID, loss of a job, loss of um, maybe education or a degree program or a vacation or something. There is a lot of loss happening. People are carrying a tremendous amount of grief. And so if that's you, I just want to say you are not alone. I am having so many conversations literally every week with people who are in my church or in my life, in my community, who are just feeling, man, why... Why do I feel so down? Why do I feel so slow? Why do I feel like I'm walking through mud, swimming in mud here? And that is really, I think, just a collective grief that we all are experiencing due to COVID, due to, due to the racialized tension in our country. It's an election year. Things are tense. We are carrying heavy burdens with us. And of course, school is back. You know, my three kids are off in many different schools, many different um, directions and programs. And so We've got expectations and losses and hard things going on with school. And then, of course, this week for us here in Colorado has been heavy. We are acknowledging that it has been one year since the death of Elijah McLean. And you'll have to go back and listen to my last episode of All Things if you want to know more about that. But Elijah McLean was killed by the Aurora police officers. And we here in Colorado just would love to see justice for Elijah. And we're waiting on that and hope to see it very soon. But of course, I am heartbroken and angry and concerned about what's going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin. You know, again, you'll have to go check out the news if you're not sure what's going on, but I definitely see, and for very good reason, totally legitimate, totally valid, my black friends, my black brothers and sisters who I am in relationship with and in community with, they are reeling from the disparity that they see, the difference in treatment between an unarmed black man in Kenosha who was shot many times in the in his back and is now paralyzed, the difference between treatment of him and the treatment of a heavily armed white teenager who killed at least one person during these protests in Kenosha. And he was passed over while carrying his large gun, passed over by police who were pursuing somebody else that he just saw. They saw him clearly as a non-threat and he wasn't even arrested until he turned himself in to the police. So this just this disparity, this difference in the way that an unarmed black man and a heavily armed white man 
was treated in Kenosha. And I think we see just a repeated history of that in the United States. And so I, I just want to say to my black friends, I see you and I'm grieving with you and I stand with you. Our hearts are rightly heavy these days. These are not light things. It's, these are these are momentous times in our nation. They are heavy days. And I think that you and I, especially you who are followers of Christ, as am I, we who belong to Jesus, we who are members of the kingdom of Christ, he is our king. We have to be so intentional about keeping our eyes focused on him, about being in his word, being in prayer, being in church and being in community and fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I just want to encourage you, don't be fixing your eyes on this nation. You know, I was grieved last night to hear Vice President Mike Pence say that we ought to fix our eyes on old glory, taking that verse right out of Hebrews chapter 12, removing the name of Jesus and inserting the title of the American flag. He said, fix your eyes on old glory. And that truly grieved me because my hope for me and you is that we would be fixing our eyes on the creator and the savior of the universe who now sits on his throne. You and I have a better hope than our nation. We have a better hope than politics. We have a better hope than the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. We have a better hope than who is going to be our president in November. Our hope is in God. And that is where he is where we should be fixing our eyes, not on our nation, not on our flag, not on our national history. Let's you and I be investing our hope and our trust, not in the weak and fallible and temporary kingdoms of this world, but in the kingdom of God, his kingdom will come, his will will be done. And so that's really where I want to focus for this episode. I want to be looking at the kingdom of God. What does the word of God say? Just turning your heart and mind back to what is true. I want to share with you today an article that was published um, on the Life in the Gospel website last month. It is an article that was written by pastor and author Tim Keller. And if you have listened to me or read anything I've written you know, for very long, you know that Tim Keller is my hero. I just really appreciate the way he brings together theology and anthropology, meaning he brings together just the study of who God is, God's character, God's word, who God is, and where that meets, where that intersects culture and humans. What So that's the intersection of theology and anthropology. And I just so appreciate Keller. I feel like he really challenges me. He stretches me. He helps me to think deeply. And so I really value just about everything he writes. And so this article by him was in, again, the Life in the Gospel website, and I'm going to link the article and I would really encourage you to go there, but I'm not kidding. Since reading this over a month, like, let's see, early August, so like three weeks ago, um, I have thought about this article every single day. I printed it out. It ended up being like 30 pages. I printed it out. I highlighted it. I've sent it to many different people. I keep referring to it over and over, and I've just been chewing on it. And so that's what I want to share with you. The article is entitled, A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. So if you are listening to this and you're especially intrigued by or maybe concerned about critical race theory, you might want to give um, that article a read. Again, the title is A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. And I just want to hang out in this one specific part of the article. In the article, Keller provides a brief outline of biblical justice. And honestly, this section of the article had me literally exclaiming amen from my reading chair. It was so good to read these words because they were grounded in the word of God. This article and what the word of God has to say about justice is robust and it's solid and it is after the character of our God 
it is glorious. And so I, I just appreciated how Keller brought to light what the scriptures say about justice. And I want to share that with you because as you know, this area of justice is really dividing the church right now. You know that it's probably happening in your local church. And if it's not happening in your local church, it's definitely happening in the broader national and global church. We've got some big names saying some very definitive and big things about justice and the Bible. And I think there are two extremes on the spectrum that aren't necessarily right. You know, on one hand, we've got people saying, We've got to just focus on the gospel. You know, there, to, to pursue justice is to pursue Marxism. And to pursue social justice is really a works-based righteousness. Our only hope as believers, our only hope for the nation is really just to preach the gospel and hope that people get saved. And then all of the social ills in our world will be healed. And then we've got on the other side of the spectrum, you know, people in the church who are going so far as to say, you're not really a Christian. You're not really saved unless you do this kind of social justice work, you know, unless you care about this people group, unless you are engaged in a certain kind of work, showing a certain kind of behavior, then you're not a real Christian. And I see both extremes really accusing each other of not being true followers of Christ. And of course, it's not just two-sided. This debate that's happening inside our churches is not just two-sided. There's many sides. There's many views. It's confusing, it's chaotic, and it's a cacophony. Um, and that's really why I love this article. There's so much clarity in this article. It brings biblical justice, simply what the Bible says about justice, into focus. It's a clear description for you and me. So Keller in the article provides five facets to biblical justice, and I'm going to outline them for you in the remainder of this episode. Five facets to biblical justice. And just to give you like a table of contents, here's the five. Community, equity, corporate responsibility, individual responsibility, and advocacy. So let's just dive right in. The first facet of biblical justice is community, meaning others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntarily. Okay, so basically we who belong to the Lord, we who are Christians, we who are saved by grace through faith, we are called by God himself to live in such a way that strengthens others. We are not permitted to live for our own personal gain. We are not meant to hoard up our wealth. We are not meant to just save up all of our resources and wealth so that we prosper. No, we are called to live in a way so that our neighbors prosper. And we see an example of this in the Old Testament laws that call for gleaning. Now, gleaning was when landowners were required to not totally pick all of their crops clean. They were to leave some for the for the poor. So they were not supposed to go pick every olive or get gather in all the wheat or to pick every single grape. They were to leave a sufficient amount so that the poor could then come along and pick the crops for themselves. And so the landowner's wealth in this is, is somewhat reined in so that the poor can profit. But the godly and righteous landowner is happy to do this. The godly and righteous landowner recognizes that the land is not really his to begin with. It actually belongs to the Lord. He is just a steward of it. And so his generosity to the poor is voluntary and it's lavish because he recognizes that all that he has is from God anyway. So as he has freely received, he wants to freely give. And I love these gleaning laws. I love this example because it highlights so well how biblical justice is neither capitalist nor socialist. It's neither focused on and consumed with gaining as much wealth as possible at any cost, nor does it require us to forcibly take from the wealth, take wealth from the rich. Um, you know, the landowner's crops are not to be confiscated, but happily and freely given for the good of the community. 
I love that. Okay, second facet of biblical justice is equity. Everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. So Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, instructs the Israelites to apply the same laws and standards to the foreigner as to the native born. Now, bribery is highlighted as wrong, in particular in Isaiah, because it gives preferential treatment to the wealthy who can buy their way out of whatever trouble they might be in. So in that situation, there is not equitable treatment of both the poor and the wealthy because the wealthy are bribed and they can get out of a situation that they might be in. Other things are highlighted in scripture like unfair wages. that Those are highlighted in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Amos talks about unjust scales. These are business practices or political practices that do not treat everyone equally and with dignity. I love this quote by Keller. He says, any system of justice or government in which decisions or outcomes are determined by how much money parties have is a stench before God. So in biblical justice, everyone is to be treated equally and with dignity, whether that's a mas- uh, na- excuse me, whether that's a matter of your nationality or your wealth or any other way, everyone is to be treated equally and with dignity. Okay, third facet, and this one's going to be a little bit longer, but third facet of biblical justice is corporate responsibility meaning I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. Okay, this is a hard one for us as Americans because we are so individually minded. We're so independent. We tend to think of our actions as just our own doing, our own thing, our own shortcoming, our own fault, our own sin. But there are times when the Bible calls us to corporate responsibility, meaning as a group, we share blame. So here are some examples that Keller helps us out with. Daniel repented for the sins of his ancestors in Daniel chapter 9. Um, After King Saul was dead, God held the nation of Israel responsible for the injustices committed against the Gibeonites. In Joshua 7, that's the sin of Achan, and Numbers 16, that's Korah's rebellion. God holds entire families responsible for the sins of just one member. And in 1 Samuel 15 and Deuteronomy 23, God holds the members of one generation of a pagan nation responsible for the sins of a past generation. So Keller goes on to describe why, say he says, God holds us corporately responsible for three reasons. So why why are we held corporately responsible? Well, here's three reasons. The first is that we are, in fact, corporately, corporately responsible for certain sins. So for example, in Achan's family, the other members who didn't do the actual stealing, now Achan did the stealing, the other members didn't, but they helped Achan to become the kind of person who would steal. They were held responsible for poorly forming his character. There was poor character formation in Achan's family. So it really matters. It matters to God how we are shaping others in our household. Number two, there's corporate participation. When we sin, when I sin, it affects others around me. So our sin is not just limited to ourselves, but it affects others. Sinful patterns are reproduced when sin is left unchecked, and it can be reproduced throughout generations. So for example, in the Ten Commandments, when God says in Exodus 20, Verses four and five, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So God is saying those who create idols and worship false gods instead of him, pass this on to their children. 
And he will judge up to the third and fourth generation those who hate him. So this hate is inherited. He's not going to judge people who don't hate him. There's this principle that the fathers hated God and they made idols and they taught their children to hate God and to worship the idols. And so the sin, that sin was then progressed throughout the generations. And it's true. We tend to participate in the sins of our parents or the sins of previous generations. Not always clearly, you know, he says the converse in verse six, that he will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. So those fathers loved him and and instilled a love of God in their children. So corporate participation. In fact, we are frequently participate in the sins that have been presented by our parents or previous generations. And now thirdly, the third reason God holds us corporately responsible is institutionalized sin. So we as a society are prone to institutionalizing habits and systems and attitudes and structures that favor the majority or favor the powerful over the minority or the oppressed. So whoever is in power, whoever is in control, predictably, understandably, creates systems and structures to keep himself and his people and his way of life in control, in power. The powerful want to persist in being powerful. You know, the wealthy want to keep being wealthy. The powerful want to keep being powerful. Those who are high up don't want to go low. This is predictable. This is how we are. In the Bible, we see this in criminal justice systems. In Leviticus 19.15, commercial practices such as high interest loans in Exodus 22.25-27, Jeremiah 22.13, or unfairly low or delayed wages, such as in James 5, 4, or Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15. So just this idea of institutionalized sin, whether it's in high interest loans, the criminal justice system, delayed wages, these unfair and unjust systems wreak havoc on the whole society. And they're super destructive because they keep entire groups at the top and entire groups at the bottom. They they maintain, they persist systems that are unfair, okay? So fourth, the fourth facet of biblical justice is individual responsibility. So we just focused on corporate responsibility. Now we're going to look at individual responsibility. Keller puts it this way, I am finally responsible for all my sins, but not all my outcomes. So first, speaking to our outcomes, the Bible does not claim that our success or failure as people is wholly due to our own individual choices. That is not biblical. There are environmental factors. There are circumstances. There is a context that may lead to your downfall or your destruction or mine. It's not necessarily something that we did wrong. So for example, you might be born into poverty or you may may become poor due to very bad, sinful choices, but you might've been born into it, or you might've been born during a famine or a war or during a plague. So those are circumstances. That's a context that you're not wholly responsible for, but you and I are wholly responsible for our own sins. So we are indeed products of our communities and our context, but we are also responsible to resist the sinful patterns that we might be born into. So both corporate responsibility and individual responsibility exist. They do not contradict one another. We are the products of our environments, but we are also responsible for our own behavior. You and I, each one of us will have to give an account for our own individual sins, an account for our 
for what we have done, for what we have believed, for what we have participated in. Our salvation obviously is totally individual. We as unique persons either receive the saving grace of Jesus or we refuse it. But to put all of our hope and credit and in either corporate responsibility or individual responsibility is to err. Like we cannot really land in one or the other. The Bible says both are true. Finally, the fifth facet of biblical justice is advocacy. We must have special concern for the poor and the marginalized. So in both Isaiah 117 and Psalm 41.1, the Bible calls us to have a special concern for those who are powerless. Proverbs 31, eight through nine calls us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We're not called to do that for the rich and the powerful because they don't need us to. It's not that God doesn't care about the rich. It's not that he doesn't care about the powerful or that they're somehow less important, but they have a voice. They can defend themselves. They don't need us to advocate for them. The playing field in our world is just not level. The playing field in our nation, in our city, it's not level here. It's not level anywhere. But we have to do what we can to level it. God calls us to give social, financial, cultural, capital help to those who have less than us. You know, Jeremiah in chapter 22, Zechariah in chapter 7, they both call us to protect those who can't protect themselves. So, to sort of wrap this up and sum this up, I just think these five facets are glorious. I mean, they seriously, they make my heart sing. Let's just review them. Community. Others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntarily. Equity. Everybody must be treated equally and with dignity. Corporate responsibility. I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. Individual responsibility. I am finally responsible for all my sins, but not all my outcomes. And fifth, advocacy. We must have special concern for the poor and the marginalized. You guys, I just feel like the word of God is so good. It's so complete. It's so able. The word of God is able to meet us in the chaos of 2020. The Bible gives us clear directions as to how we should behave in the midst of COVID, in the midst of police brutality, racial injustice, or violent riots and protests that have turned evil and wicked. The Bible informs us how to think about immigration and education and our retirement accounts. We don't have to wonder how God would have us respond right here, right now. He wants us to steward all that we have for the good of others. This brings him glory. And when we do that, when you and I live according to these facets of biblical justice, we walk in the image of our maker. We live according to the king. We abide by the will for his kingdom. And you know what? We thrive. This is the way we were made to live. And so when we do live this way, we thrive. In the article, Keller goes on to critique secular theories of justice. He shines a spotlight particularly on libertarian, liberal, utilitarian, and postmodern theories of justice. It's within the postmodern theory where you're going to find critical race theory if you're interested. I would say go read them for a deep dive if you want, but I want to leave you with this. Biblical justice is rooted in the character of our good and wise God. It covers everything. Whereas many secular views of justice are fragmented or they fall short or they're lopsided in some way, the biblical system for justice is comprehensive. And let me just also say this. When I read the other secular theories of justice, I could see some truth and some goodness in each one. And then I could also see where they fell short, where they were fragmented, or where they were even maybe evil. But I just want to say that each theory 
had the fingerprints of, of our maker. It's that common grace that we all have. Each theory doesn't need to be completely, you know, thrown out. We don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can see some helpful things in each theory, but biblical justice is robust and it's able. It's far more attractive and capable than any of these other theories. Biblical justice understands that all are fallen, that we all sin, that all men fall short of the glory of God. But biblical justice also acknowledges that there is common grace, that God's grace can be seen throughout humanity, even those who don't acknowledge God or follow him because God uses all men and all things for his glory. Biblical justice rests in the ultimate reality that God will make all things right. Now, God calls us to fight for justice with fervor and energy and passion and to level that playing field and to give a voice to the voiceless. But we also, at the end of the day, we acknowledge that everything is not going to be made right in this world. And we can rest in God because he will do that. A day is coming when he will make every wrong right. And, you know, I think biblical justice is so glorious because it looks like Jesus. It exemplifies Christ, Jesus who laid aside his glory and his power to help the helpless. Jesus who voluntarily laid down his authority to serve the weak. And when he used his power to serve the weak, it was then that God exalted him. Jesus used his power and his privilege to serve those who could not take care of themselves, who could not make things right. And God exalted him for it. So I just love how these five facets, community, equity, corporate responsibility, individual responsibility, and advocacy, just they highlight the character of our God. So when you and I look at current events, you know, some things that are going on that are especially troublesome is the imprisonment and even the loss of life amongst Uyghur Muslims in China. This is a huge problem. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go look it up and find out what is happening to Uyghur Muslims, Christians as well, in China right now. It's horrific. What's going on in Nigeria, the violent deaths of Christians all over Nigeria. I mean, even when I think about, for example, Russia poisoning the man who took a stand against the government, or when I look at what's going on with Jerry and Becky Falwell at Liberty University, or what's going on in the context of each of our cities across the nation right now. We can apply biblical justice to each of these current events. We don't have to wonder what we should do. We know that we can seek the character and the goodness and the word of God and apply what he says to what's happening here and now, just like I say at the beginning and end of every episode of All Things. So friends, go read that article and apply biblical justice in your context, whether it's with your neighbor or it's going to the nations, whether it's local, whether it's far, whether it's in your church or in your neighborhood or your state, wherever you are seeing injustice, ask the Lord to show you how you might apply biblical justice. Thank you guys for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.